This is Jimmy Corain, and this week's episode of Improv Nerd is brought to you by the Atlanta Improv Festival, running June 16th through the 18th at Village Theater. The festival boasts the best improv acts in the city as well as top performers across the country. Enjoy a weekend of great performances, workshops, and shenanigans in the coolest theater in Atlanta. Hurry, and you might have a chance to win $500 in an improv cage match. For more details, check out AtlantaImprovFestival.com. That's AtlantaImprovFestival.com. And we're also sponsored by the Chicago Women's Funny Festival. Tickets and festival passes are on sale now for the Chicago Women's Funny Festival. Featuring 400 performers and 95 groups and 83 shows over four days, June 16th through the 19th at Stage 773 in Chicago. Check out show listings online by group, genre, or style of comedy to find shows you'll love at ChicagoFunnyWomensFestival.com. That's ChicagoFunnyWomensFestival.com. And don't forget to register for my award-winning Artist Low Comedy Weekend Summer Intensives here in Chicago. I limit these intensives to only 14 people, and they always sell out. To register and for dates in the summer, all you have to do is go to my website, jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. Also, if you like what we're doing here on Improv Nerd, I would love it if you could help us out and write a very nice review for us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast as well. I'd really appreciate it. Here we go. We got another great episode of Improv Nerd for you, and our guest today is Miles Stroth. He is the founder of the Pack Theater in Los Angeles. He is an incredible improviser, teacher, and director. When I first knew him back in Chicago in the 90s, he was part of the legendary improv team, The Family, at I.O. Chicago, where he also created a wonderful two-person show with Dan Backadall called Zump. Miles and Heather Ann Campbell are superstars in the UCB cage match where they've won, I, I believe they tied a record, 44 consecutive wins in a cage match. We talked to Miles about a car accident that he had when he was younger and how it left him bedridden for over a year and the good that came from that. How he had studied other improvisers that kept making him a better improviser and how playing in the cage match changed his approach to improvisation completely. This is the last show. We did five shows out in Los Angeles, and this is the last show that we did. And uh, this was taped at uh, Miles's Theater, the Pack Theater, in Los Angeles, California. And it, it was a live show, which means there's an improv portion of this show, like we do in all most live shows. Like 99% of the live shows have always had an improv component to it. This is no different, because Miles and I, in this episode, improvise a scene. The scene that Miles and I did was very silent, it was very physical, and I've been agonizing trying to edit this together so it would translate for this episode. I don't want to lose what Miles says about the scene. Uh, the solution that I came up with after I bounced it off a couple people was that you will hear, we will go into the scene, you'll hear a little music, and then I will come back on and describe what happens, and then we will go back uh, to the interview part portion where Miles will uh, break down what the scene is. So I feel a lot of shame about this, especially because I didn't think I did a great job in the improv scene. So um, that that's the best I can do. Oh God, I wish I could do better for you, but I'm filled with shame about it. It doesn't matter. Here it is. You're going to love this. It's the He is so articulate about improv. You're just going to love this episode. So here it is, the Miles Stroth episode. Enjoy. Miles, Miles, Miles. Thank you for having me here and setting this up. Well, thank you for having and, me and on I've your known podcast. You, I thank you. And I've known you a long time. And I have to say, I almost experience you being excited doing this. Is, that, is there any truth to that? Oh, I'm absolutely excited to do this. Okay. I mean, to, to me, one, I mean, Jimmy's doing his podcast tonight, Improv Nerd, in lieu of Pack Improv, mm -hmm. which is the podcast I do. Right. So for me, it's like a night off. Mm -hmm. All I got to do is answer questions. Okay. All right. <laughs> and have fun talking to you. What, okay. All right. So let's start with you. All right. So you grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb outside of Chicago, and you're one of six kids. 
and you were very involved in high school. You played basketball. You did gospel, a gospel choir, dance, and theater. Yet you said you were a problem as a child. Oh, yeah. I was a huge problem as a child. How were you? In what way? I think it summed up best that there was an article, I think my freshman year of high school, in the yearbook that was like called Courting the Action because I, I, I was involved in a bunch of different activities. And the, the, the idea of the article is how do you manage to do all of those things? And my mother read that and answered it immediately, he doesn't go to class. That's how he manages to do all those things, which was absolutely true. I was, I was a wonderful extracurricular student, but a terrible student. And uh, were your parents frustrated with you? Oh, I was I was grounded for most of high school. The the best thing, I mean, they did everything they could grounding wise. You couldn't be more grounded. Uh, but I just basically it's some. What happened was I I went to a Catholic grammar school, right? Very str- you know strict Catholic grammar school. I'd never missed a class in my life. It wasn't even something that was something for Tom Sawyer to do or something. Uh, I get into, I, my mother signs me up for the summer musical going into high school. So I'm like, all right, I'll do this. Turns out it's a blast, right? And I start hanging out with the juniors and seniors who are all cool, right? And they're skipping classes because it's a public high school, and you can just apparently you can just leave. Uh, so I start doing that, and it just gets worse and worse the more I go through high school. I'm just like, well, what's the point in going? I was also bored. It wasn't like I was stupid like i do a b work in class but then i just wouldn't go to class uh and apparently they can fail you for that uh and they did quite often and then the other thing i didn't know and i've known you a long time i never knew you were a trained vocalist when was the first time you fell in love with singing i had older brothers who sang uh so i started singing what when kind I was... of stuff were they singing <clears throat> well i what i first saw was my older brother will doing high school musicals uh, and it was great. He he's got a particularly great voice, uh, and I, I I I loved it. And that's when I I start first off I started singing was musical stuff, just copying him. Uh, and then you know you, once you start singing, you just like singing. I, mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. And then uh, you see your first main stage show, uh, and uh, it was a, a main stage review at Second City mm-hmm. with Dave Pasquese and Tim Meadows, and. There was a specific scene in from that main stage show that that was kind of transformative for you. Can you describe that? Well, for me, I, I remember it as a beginning. This is jump jumping forward. This is, I, I'm out of high school. I'm about you know nineteen twenty at the time, uh, no, not doing anything really. No direction in your life. No direction point. in my life. Uh, I'm not going to college. Uh, I'm working crummy jobs. I go on a date uh, to, to the Second City show. Uh, and I can't remember everyone. It was, it was a good review. It was with you know Pasquale, Joe Murray, uh, Farley, Holly, Holly Wartell, uh, Wartell. Uh, Tim Meadows. Uh, if I'm forgetting anyone, uh, oh Pasquale. The, the moment was and it was funny because I forget the entire show except for one moment where Dave Pasquale was a bum asking someone for a cigarette, and he just did it so real. I was sitting in the audience going, that, that's, that's exactly what that guy would do. That, I can't believe he just did that because that's exactly what that guy would do. And it, it was just something simple, like he put his hands into his mouth. Uh, but it just so struck me as so cool that I was like, I want to try this. And it was, it was really, it wasn't until like a year later that I started. And you start taking it to Players Workshop at the Second City. That's right. Uh, and, you know, you have a very famous quote that uh, I think you said something like it took you five years to stop sucking. What, was, what were you like in those first classes at Players Workshop? Well, the Players Workshop is, for some, for me, uh, I'm not going to harp on them as bad as I, as I used to. Well, they're uh, no longer. You know that. The Players the, Workshop oh, do not exist anymore. All right. Well, and for me, it was bullshit. It was, <laughs> uh, I mean, but that was looking back because I didn't know at the time. And then the fact is it's true. It wasn't bullshit. It was, it was the kind of workshop that's for absolute beginners, which I was. Uh, but you spend a lot of time moving through the space. And I remember one class in particular, where I was petting an invisible animal for like 20 minutes. Uh, when I look back on some stuff, I'm like, man, that's just a, that's a teacher killing time. Cause there's no reason to have to have done that. Uh, so I did the player's workshop, you know, for what it was worth for about six months. And then I was actually, I was said, I was, I was lucky enough to be hit by a car and shatter both my legs. Uh, Tell me about that because... 
I've heard you talk about this before, but but what happened? Take me back to that day when you were hit by the car. It was January 8th, 1988. Uh, I was coming out of a late night bar, the midnight hour, actually. Were you, were you drunk? Uh, I, I assume at some level I was. Okay. I, was, I think it was four in the morning and I'm coming out of this bar. Uh, but it was it was also because I, I got off work at two in the morning because I was close I closed another bar at two in the morning and we all went over there to have a few before we went home uh, so I'm sure I was buzzed but I wasn't drunk I remember everything except being hit uh, I come out of the bar I'm walking across the street the last thing I remember was I was laughing uh, and then nothing and I woke up two days later in a trauma center what had happened was a car was coming from you know I, I checked the street I was clear on my side uh, but a car coming from the other direction shot out from behind a car and sped to pass it uh, and hit me at about 40 miles an hour, threw me 72 feet and ran over me. Uh, the, uh, the people who saw it uh, thought I was dead and they called the ambulance for a corpse. So the ambulance took like 30 minutes to get there. Uh, and when they got there, the, the, the texts were like, this guy's alive. So they brought me to the Loyola Trauma Center and they were going to chop off my legs from the knee down. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. They were going to chop off my legs from the knee down. Because I, I, I woke up. It was kind of funny to look back. I woke up two days later. And I looked down and you, you saw my heels. I was like, what the fuck? Uh, and I went back. I was on a lot of morphine. Uh, but a friend of my family, Dr. Boone Brackett, uh, good old boy from Arkansas, uh, was kind of a groundbreaking or, 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 ah, or orthopedic surgeon. Uh, my mom called him because he's a friend of the family, and he came in and said, eh, let me try something. Uh, so he did, and he took a few operations, but he got my legs back and, and working. So, it was, But I was laid up. I was in cast for about a year and a half, uh, a year and a half that I did not have to continue studying at the player's workshop. <laughs> but you have an epiphany while you're in the cast. Yeah, I'm in cast for a year and a half doing it was funny that was such a it was a classic just waste of time you have a year and a half if you think about it you have a year and a half basically most of it laying in a bed how much could you accomplish and people are bringing you food you don't have to do anything right how much could you read how much could you write how much could you accomplish i played a video game basically as i just remembered i played tetris on the pc till it stopped dropping pieces so to, me, so to me, I beat Tetris. Uh, so I didn't do anything, but I, I did realize, like, you know what? I'm 21. I was 21 at the time. I was like, I should probably do something with my life. And I think I'm going to try that, that improv thing I saw. or that I, I didn't know it was improv. I'm going to try that Second City thing. And so you go to Second City, and you, you audition for the conservatory. I audition for the, the conservatory. Uh, I, I, I get in. Uh, Rachel Dratch doesn't get in. Rachel Dratch was... was, was in my audition, she didn't get in. Uh, you know, classic Second City. But I, I guess that, that happens to a lot of people because to me, that those auditions had nothing to do with who was deserving of being in their in their in in their the, the workshops. It was funny because I actually had to get a high school to get an audition. I had to go back and get a high school drama teacher to write me a note saying that I had acting classes that I hadn't had, so that I would be able to qualify to audition for the Second City Training Center. Uh, which, looking back, I was like, wow, that's horseshit. Uh, you shouldn't have to go through all that just to get a fucking audition. Uh, but I, you know, I got in. I did my two years. It took two years to get through the whole program. because They were in the process of like rebuilding what was Piper's Alley at the time, I believe. Uh, but I, I had some really good people in the class I wound up going through with. Like John Favreau was in the class. Carlos Jacot was in the class. Renee Albert was in the class. Uh, and I, I was just it's like, they were the good ones. I was somewhere after them. Like, I, I wasn't the worst people in class, but I wasn't them. I was somewhere in the middle. Uh, so I did okay going through the Second City program, got my T-shirt, and then I was like, now what? Because they weren't hiring, because you know they weren't hiring back in those days. Uh, it was actually a kid in my class named Ben who said, you should check out this uh, I, I did this Improv Olympic thing. This guy, Del Close, teaches over there. He's a, he's a legend. Uh and so he takes me, at that point, it was just a walk across the street almost, to I believe what was called, I always confuse these, it wasn't, it was Chow. It was upstairs, right yeah, near Second down, City. Yeah, it was down the street from Second City. It was yeah. an Italian restaurant, and upstairs was the I.O. It's, I, I didn't realize it was an Italian restaurant, because now I think about it, because I, I started when they moved from Chow to Pop Milano's. 
Uh, and it was in the basement of an Italian restaurant. So you walk to Chow, and you go upstairs, and what do you see? I couldn't even tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was so, it was, there was a bunch of people on stage doing stuff. It looked like fun. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, it was exciting. Uh, but again, I didn't get it at all. Uh, at this point, I'd finished Second City Training Center, so I hadn't learned how to improvise. Uh, and then, so I, But I was like, all right, I'll try this. If, if nothing else, I have, there's nothing else to do. I had no idea of anywhere else to go. So like, I'll try this improv Olympic thing. So I sign up and I take classes with Sharna at the, the pop basement of Pop Milano's. And back then, you know, you probably, how many classes were you in for the first level before you're thrown on a team? It was much different than it is today where you have to audition. Yeah. I mean, well, it was much smaller then. And I, I think I was thrown up about, about six weeks in. Uh, just because, but primarily because I could sing. Sharna loved singers, and they used to open the shows with a thing called Musical Option, right? And I could I could do Musical Option uh, even better maybe than some of the more experienced players. Just because Musical I, Option I was a game where people would yell freeze, and then you'd have to do a style, and someone would say gospel or opera, and then you would do it. And you'd sing in that style. Right. Uh, so I could do that, but then when I, the Herald came around, I just like, I still remember, I always tell a story to my students, the first two Heralds I did, I didn't speak in. I just stood in the back line and it looked like Because you were blur. scared? I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I couldn't. It, I didn't get it. I didn't know what was going on. I had been there for six weeks, right? Uh, I, I had not been taught how to do a herald yet. Uh, and I'm thrown up with guys like, you know, Richter and Stack. Andy Richter, Brian Stack. These people oh, were These are great. powerhouses. Yeah. Uh, Noah, Scott great. Robinson, Matt Walsh, I think, was on that team. And they, they're just a... They're a fucking blur in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I stood in the back line. I, I remember the second show, I played a hooker in the background. <laughs> that, that was my move. I'm like, well, I did something. And so how did that shift for you to start getting out there and doing scenes? Oh, that well, I eventually, at the third show, I spoke. I made myself speak in the, because literally, in, even in the opening, which is a big pattern game was physical, right? Uh, I'd never said anything. Because they're talking so fast, and I'm paranoid. Like, well, I don't get all the connections. I don't. They're, they're all, and these are smart guys. Right. Uh, so I just kind of did whatever the physical was until it was over, and then went found my spot in the back wall. Uh, but the, the third show I did, I, I was I finally spoke. It's funny because I remember that the suggestion was Iraq, uh, and this is back before we were all inundated with the map of the Middle East. This is like just post Iran Contra, I think, uh, and. You know, it's Iraq, and these the guys start, you know, political smart, political smart, smart, smart. They're gone, and I can feel it happening again. It's just becoming a blur of sound. Uh, I can no longer hear anything. And inside me, I'm just like, I'm going to fucking speak. I'm going to say something in this goddamn opening. Uh, and it was like giving birth when I did. I, 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 it wasn't like I found a pause. I just suddenly blurted out, uh, that's the one on the left, right? That's all I could think to say. Uh, and it got a big laugh because back then, a lot of people probably thought that was like, oh, yeah, because Iran and Iraq are shaped kind of differently. They're, one's Iran, one's Iraq. Which one is which? Uh, but that got a, a big, that was my first laugh in an improv show. And when did it stop not being a blur? Do you remember that? Like when you did a really good scene or you did a really good Herald? Actually, after that, it was like, all right, it's, it's you, know, you, you try step by step. I remember the first game I started was a, was a line game, the I am game. I started on the I, I am, am game. It was... And the reason I started it was because I didn't know his name, but that tall redheaded guy, Stack, uh, I knew no matter what I started, he was going to close it. Right? And I'd started some game, some, I think it was something about advertising. I said something like, I'm that thing that falls out of a magazine when you open it. That annoying thing that falls out of a magazine when you're opening it. Uh, it's like, you know, eh, all right. right? And I'm like, uh, that's, that's okay, just wait. Because... In about eight people, this game's going to look brilliant. Uh, and sure enough, Stack comes out at the end and does something about, I'm a college student in a lobster suit passing out flyers at the, on, the, on the train platform. And whatever, he does it, it just fucking kills. And I'm kind of like, I started that game. Now, I heard that you tell your students uh, that you can learn from everybody, but Brian Stack is one person you can't learn from because... It's not that you can't learn from him. It's just that he's, there are some people in improv 
and not a lot, very few, who are just, to, from, from my perspective, you know, so unique in the way they perceive the world and how they associate it with their body of knowledge that I just, like, there are some moves he makes, I'm like, how, why the fuck did you say that? Because <laughs> most things, I'm, I'm just like, okay, I can see how you would get there. I can see it, this was what happened, and I can see the mental process to get you from that to saying that. Uh, that's part of my studying improv. But some of his things, I'm just like, I don't know how you got from this to fucking that. I just don't know why you would say that. It was hysterical, and fuck you for saying it, because I don't know why you said it. Uh, Were you jealous of somebody like that? Oh, I mean, yeah. Absolutely, I was jealous of somebody like that. Uh, and yeah. what do you do with your jealousy? Me, it's self-loathing and I want to kill myself. What do you do with it? I, I try and work harder. I mean, I, I mean uh, it's like because to me, you know, almost everyone to me was, was better than me. Uh, so I'm like, all right, how do I make myself better? Right? How do I be more inventive like McKay? Right? How do I be, be smarter like Noah? Right? How, how do I play more more characters like whoever? Uh, I would look at players and be, what do they do better than me, and how can I make myself better at that? And just um, I would just imagine exercises for myself and practice them uh, until I got better, because I knew that it was just I knew it was just time and commitment. I knew that with improv, if I stayed with it, I would get better. And it, it, and I like this because you're almost saying the the talent is almost irrelevant. It's not irrelevant, uh, but I think, like, I don't think every person can become one of, like, the great players, right? But I wouldn't discount the possibility. I wouldn't, because if, if I said that, if I said of any one person, I don't think you can be one of the great players, you know, that, that's pretty fucking presumptuous to say, because uh, maybe they can I know that, you know, talent, I had talent, right? I could sing. I could dance. I was physical. I, I knew how to basically act. Uh, I, I, was, I was smart in certain ways. Uh, so I had talent, and so I just needed time. Uh, for a lot of people, like, there's not, a, you know, there's just not a lot of talent, but if you keep working at it, because I've seen people go from, you know, being terrible to being pretty good. And actually, being a pretty good improviser is pretty impressive. Uh, how far you're going to go with it. And at the same time, even the people I've seen go from, you know, not good to, to, to good, it's like so often I see just people stop. It's like I'm still trying to get better, right? There are still things I can do to improve my game. Uh, I've, never, I've never stopped that. What I teach changes. The way I play changes. Uh, if I thought I was done, I would quit. It would be uninteresting to me. Uh, so I think, I, I, I would, you know what? Yeah, anyone can do it. So <laughs> some people will, I think, rise higher. That's just, I think that's just the nature of the world. But yeah, anyone can do it. Um, you then you're placed on a team at the, the uh, Improv Olympic, later the I.O. called the Family, and this fa this team has got Adam McKay, Matt Besser, Neil Flynn. Ali Faranaki and Ian Roberts, yourself, everyone on that team is successful. For the most part. <laughs> you, don't, you don't consider yourself a success? <coughs> Not comparatively. Do you compare yourself to their success? Yeah, I compare myself to their good, success. Good, good, It makes uh, me feel better. No, but I was like, I actually, I mean, because to, to be fair, I was placed on a team. When I finally got on a team that wasn't me sitting in with a team I did not belong on, I was put on a team that was built to surround Matt Need and Noah Uh which was called the Victims Family. Uh, and that was me, Noah Gregoropoulos, Matt Need, Pat McCartney, Jody Lennon, uh, Gia something, and some other guy whose name I've, I've forgotten at this point. Uh, but over the years, the Victims Family, you know, it, it, people came and went. For a while, it was Michelle Cole, Alex Bays, Rachel Dratch was in there. Um, Pete Holney was there for a while. Pete, Pete Holney was in more later, uh, right before the victim's family switched to the family. Rick Roman was in there, and you have to mention him primarily because uh, I was the only original member of the victim's family that survived to the, the family. Uh, because eventually we, we lost people, picked up people. I think first in order of who's first on the family was me, then Adam McKay. Uh, 
then I think Besser and Ian, then Ali, then Neil. I think I've got that right as far as the order in which they came on. Uh, Neil was the last one to come, come on, and he came on to replace Rick Roman, uh, who had driven his cab into the river and died, uh, which was, wasn't on purpose or anything. It was a fucking accident. It was the city's fault. Uh, it was an unmarked thing down uh, on Lower Wacker. Uh, but when he died, we didn't want to continue calling ourselves the victim's family. It was just too bittersweet. So we just dropped the victim and just became the family. And you described that you guys were angry guys in your mid-20s. Mm-hmm. How did you use that anger to inspire you? Because you guys were amazing. Well, there was anger. And, I mean, all of us were angry at, like, at Second City for not hiring. We were angry at uh, Jazz Freddy for not inviting us to play. Uh there was just anger and like anger in general at at society uh in different ways anger amongst ourselves you know for who who had more of, a, of anything i suppose uh but we were for each other but there was a lot i mean and again i it's a it's a generalization but i think a lot of guys in their mid 20s are fucking angry about something uh but the i mean the anger ultimately the the best of that anger was our anger with Second City for not hiring, with Jazz Freddy for not in, not accepting us really as, as far as we saw, was work. All right, invent new shit. Do something new. Uh, you're forced to, uh, which is why, I mean, again, that was that golden age. Jazz Freddy wouldn't have happened unless Second City didn't hire for 20 years. And you, you described that the 90s when we were around, that that was the golden age of improv. What made it the golden age of improv? Second City not hiring. It, it, it really did. That was a, because they didn't hire, you imagine like if for the improv Olympic to take off, it needed like it needed a team to build a house, right? That was could draw enough attention and people so that Sharna could make enough money to try and get her own building, right? Now, if Second City was hiring all the people who were doing that, she never would have been able to do that, right? She would have had newer people all the time. So you're never going to really get that thing you need. Uh, but since Second City didn't hire, and it was for a long time, I mean, the list of people that were not hired in the, you know, the 10 years prior to, to me auditioning there is just ridiculous. And we almost had an anti-Second City mentality. Oh, yeah. You know, like... I definitely had an anti-Second City I know mentality. I did. Because uh, you know, it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't until Kelly Leonard came, right? And he was the one that opened up the floodgates. He was the one that said, all right, there's a bunch of people in the, the city we can use. Let's start hiring them. Uh, but prior to that, it was all sort of in-house. And because it was that, you know, we were forced to, well, we can't... We got to do something because we want to do it, which is actually good in a way because... We were definitely doing it because we gave a shit about it because there was no money in it, right? We cared about what we were doing. We wanted to compete. You know, for me, wanted to compete, wanted to be as good, try and be better. Uh, so it made us invent shit. It made us come up with stuff. Where did you get that competitive nature? Was that through sports? Uh, I don't... I, I think some people just are, maybe. I think I, it was definitely in sports, but to me, I think it's part of my nature. Uh, you're like, like, like I experience you like competitive, but don't want to let people know you're competitive. There's kind of a laid back thing with you. Well, it depends on what I'm being competitive about. Like in, in improv, I'm, I'm competitive, but I, I don't think it is a, a negative thing. Some people think it's like, oh, you're competitive. That, that's, just not, that's not the point, man. The point is love. The point is whatever. And I was like, look, man, I'm just, if, if, if you're not competitive, I mean, if, if, you don't, if you don't choose to see something as competitive, fine. But if you look at a player who's clearly better than you and think, well, there's no, point in, 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 there's no point in looking at that or there's no way to measure myself against that, uh, then, you know, you're, I don't know what to say to you. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, again, I, I think, I think, I, but I think some people are probably like that. I think some people are, are, are just like, yeah, we're all our own people. And I guess to me, it's just like, yeah, well, I'm trying to be better. And a great way to be better is to say, well, that guy's better than me. Why don't I try and be more like that and learn from that and be better? Uh, it's, it, it, it annoys me when I'm like, you shouldn't be competitive in improv. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with being competitive? 
I love being competitive in improv. I remember the family in the old, before we were, when it was a victim's family, we're trying to be the new house team because Blue Velveeta had left, right? So there was this big vacancy there. And it came down to like Corky's callback, which was Favreau's team and the, 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 the victim's family uh, were vying for basically the t- top spot. Uh, and we used to watch the other person's show, right? Uh, and if, if they went first, we'd watch them and like watch everything they did. So, all right, that's what they did. Let's do that better than they just did that. Plus, let's do some other shit uh, because we wanted to be better. Uh, I, I see nothing wrong with using a sense of competition to motivate yourself or to improve yourself. You were also, you had a hand in creating some many long forms. Uh, such I invented a, pretending. Right. No, you were, you were in the original cast of Armando. We were in that together. The Deconstruction, the movie, Laron. Which one of these forms was the process most memorable? The process? Mm-hmm. Most memorable? Uh, well, no, the Deconstruction and the movie. That's because that was the family working with Dell. Uh, and what was what was that like working with Dell at, at that point in his life? It was a mix because Dell was like brilliant and inspiring, consistently inspiring. But he didn't he, he he didn't know how to tell you exactly how to do something. But he would say something that would get you to do it. He would he would he would get you to find it. Uh, but sometimes he'd walk into rehearsal and just lay on a table in the back of the room for twenty minutes, and we'd be like, "All right, let's do something," because he's not going to say anything. Right until maybe we do something that gets him off that table in the back of the room. Uh, I remember occasions where he would come in, lay on the table, and we'd start doing stuff, and then at some point he'd get up and leave. Uh, and it's like, holy fuck, what the hell is that? Uh, but we, we, what we did was like, well, we got to do better shit to get him not to leave the fucking room. Uh, and then he'd come in, he'd say some things that were fucking inspiring and, and beginnings, and we'd figure out something to do. Uh, and it was because to me, I learned, I didn't learn a lot from Dell. Uh, I learned some very important things from Dell, but I didn't learn a lot from Dell. I learned a lot from the family as we went through that process. As I continued to play with them, my improv is more based on the play of that show, particularly the deconstruction in the movie, uh, the play of my fellow players, my, my invention, uh, I, I, I try to imagine Adam McKay. My real man is certainly based on Ian Roberts in part. My real man. My straight man. Uh, I, I looked at all of them and what they did so well and tried to make that part of, part of my own play. And then you did a show later uh, called Zump with Dan Bacadol, who's in the audience tonight. Uh, and it was really yeah, That guy of, follows me around. Yeah. And it was uh, one of the first Weirdo duo two-person shows uh, uh, in improv. What were you what were you trying to accomplish with that show? I was trying to beat everyone to the two person. <laughs> uh because so many good players had it was a it was a show called Quartet, which was great. Uh and it was that was a it was basically the school after me, right? Right after me. Uh Quartet was great, and then they did a show called Trio. This was Stephanie Weir, Rich Stephanie Weir, Rich Tellerico, Bob Dassey. Bob Dassey. And the thing was Craig Kikowski. Back then you know, you needed six to eight people to do a show. So they did it with four, and it was impressive. And then they did it with three, and it was probably even better. And I was like, and it just, it pissed me off. Uh, they were inventing this stuff and this way of playing that was pissing me off, which to me, uh, as far as, you know, competition and, and motivation, is the highest compliment I can give a show is that show pissed me off uh, because it makes me want to work harder. So I was like, all right, there's a logical progression here. Four, three, two. Uh, so I wanted to try and do the first two-person long form. Uh, the way I saw long form was like, no, it can't just be like what, what you did with Naked, with naked which, which was, was one long scene. One long scene. I wanted to do you know, an hour-long piece that was multiple characters, multiple scenes, uh, and moved quickly like those other shows did, maybe even faster if we could. Because uh, so, I wanted to be the, you know, I wanted to get there first, basically. And w- w- how did the chemistry was great in that show? Why do you think that was? Well, purposefully, I wanted someone. I actually, I, I first the first person I wanted was uh, Karen Grazi. Karen Grazi, because uh, I was thinking the natural tension between a man and a woman, 
uh, I would benefit from on stage. The show would benefit from on stage. Uh, Karen wasn't interested. Uh, so then I just picked the best person I knew available who was also a student. I wanted a student. Like I could have picked like khaki or something. But like, no, I, I want someone because I've got a, an idea. Right. So I, I need someone who's at least going to be willing to bend to me a little bit to begin with. Was, uh, so I picked Dan. What uh, was it about Dan that you? He was just clearly the best student. Uh, it was, yeah, it was obvious. Uh, so that was, that was, that was an easy call. And then it was just, and he was, Dan was still at a point where he was willing to, you know, to, to be a student. Uh, yeah. Cause you don't fucking listen anymore. Uh, he, no, but that no, was Dan laughing. That was Dan laughing. Yeah. Uh, no, but because because what we did was I made Dan play every form I knew as a two-person form. Like we would sit in a garage sometimes and do like a two-person deconstruction, a two-person movie. So two you broke Harold. it down. You you took Harold. You took deconstruction. It broke it down for two people to play it. For two people to play. Well, I didn't really break it down like to perfect that form. My thinking was I wanted to tell Dan as best I could every everything I think, every form I understand. Every potential move I might make and where it comes from and how to understand it. Because to me, the idea was to build an ensemble of two, right? Because with six or more people, it's hard to get on the same page. But I'm like, I can convince one person to be on the same page with me. Uh, and he did it. And then it took us a while. The first few shows weren't very good. Uh, I think it was Noah who pointed out to Dan, <laughs> thankfully for Noah, because Dan was basically kind of waiting for me. Uh, Dan wasn't just going. Uh, Dan wasn't being Dan. Uh, and then once Dan started being Dan, you know, he already had all my knowledge in, in his head. He had, he just needed to stop worrying about it and just trust whatever he was going to fucking do. And that's when the show really kicked in. Uh, and those, those were some of the best, that's some of the best improv I've ever been a part of. Well, what made it so, some of the best improv? It was, it was new. It was, you get to do everything. In two person. That's one of the things you learn. Plenty of stage time. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you get to play all the characters. You get to, all the moves are yours or the other guys. Uh, it, you know, it was new. It was fun. It was smart. It was, it was character. It was game. It was dark. Sometimes it would slow down and be like sort of dark and harsh and then pick back up. Uh, I mean, we accomplished a lot formally. Uh, you know, because we, we always tried to bring something new each week if we could. Like, like examine the form, tweak it, because there was no real form. We kind of a loose form we chased. But then, you know, stuff would happen and the show would be its own. Uh, but yeah, it was just, you know, being able to... It, it, it was a, I was playing with a great player who I could trust on stage. Uh, and we were able to just, you know, the joy of creating a new show every week. Okay, so now we're going to improvise. And, uh, you know, we, we got to do Armando together. Yeah. Years ago. And I always, and, and I want you to help me help, I want you to help me work with you as an improviser. Because I always feel we kind of came from different places and I always would get lost working with you. Oh, th that's because you worry too much about what you're doing okay. on stage. Great. So I want you to help me help myself here uh, in terms of working with you. Oh, the best thing you could do for me? Yes. It's the sort of thing that probably... Noah, in some way, said to Dan way back when, do whatever the fuck you want to do. I'll be there. There's, don't anticipate me. Just okay. do whatever you want to do. Okay. All right. Do whatever you want to do at any given moment, and it will work. And it's not because I'm so great. It's because that's the nature of improv. I mean, with two Well, because I, part of me gets in my head because you have this reputation as a teacher. Like, Miles teaches it like math. It's very formulaic. It's the high status, low status, oh. different energies, all that stuff. Maybe, maybe this will calm you. Okay. Yeah, I, I have all kinds of math and rules and shit I've laid out, right? Mm -hmm. But the last thing I tell students is, all right, yeah, think like crazy about it when you're thinking about it or studying it. But the last thing I do before I go on stage is fuck it. I let it all go. Right? I don't think about any of that stuff when I'm on stage. I just listen and say the first fucking thing that occurs and to me. And you told me this... this, this this came to you recently. This fuck it, I'm not going to think anymore. That came to me actually when I was that when was I finally heaven. gave up trying to think hard while I was playing. Tell us about, about five that years when you were ago. doing the cage match with well, Heather with, Campbell. Yeah, with Heather and Campbell. She called me up to go to the UCB cage match, and I, you know, I thought it was just going to be a one-off because, as far as I knew, cage matches you had to bring an audience to win it. 
Um, so well, let's just go do this once. It'll be fun. We hadn't played in a couple of years, and we never played in front of the house. Uh, so, so she and I got over there, and we do, you know, it's a house. They had about 120 people in there. It wasn't full, but that's 120 people. The most we'd ever played for was maybe eight. Uh, so we get up, and we're just on fire. Uh, and the team that was up that night was Funtown. They, they had an off show for them because they, they, they were a good team. So I think they had an off show for them. We had a very good show, you know, because I think it was just so exciting for us. And we moved fast and played all our characters and all that. And so we won by four votes. So we got to come back the next week. What was interesting was prior to the show, because this is a show Wednesday night. It's like 1130 at night the show is supposed to start. So we're not getting on stage till close to midnight or something. And I told Heather, I was like, look, you know, I got kids. I'm tired. It's 1130 at night. I was like, look, I'll play, but I'm not going to try. <laughs> now, what does that look like? What, not trying, what does that look like? What, what it meant to me is like, I'm not going to think. I'm not going to think while I play tonight. Because that's when, you know, to me, when I'm at my best, I was thinking and playing at the same time, right? Uh, so I told her, like, I'm going to play, but I'm not going to try. Uh, and she's like, all right, so we play and it works. And we, we and this, this happens for like three weeks. I come back the next week. I'm like, look, again, it's fucking late. I'm tired. I'll play, but I'm not going to try. Again, for me, that means I'm not going to think while I play. I'm just too tired to do that shit. Let's just play. Uh, and so it, you know, it just keeps working. And I'm just like, all right, the thing I teach, uh, I should probably do that. And that was when I really finally let go. Uh, and I, and I mean, I, I didn't just think a little bit. I, I made a, and it was hard to do. I had a, I had a headache for two years at one point. And I'm, I, I'm absolutely convinced it was partly due to the fact that while I was playing. I would try and be in character and out here, but I would also be in here doing math, you know, predicting and, you know, you know, predicting, coming up with stuff while I'm out here, which inevitably meant that I was missing things because to whatever degree I was in my head, I wasn't hearing or I wasn't seeing. Uh, but I didn't trust that because thinking is so comforting. And when I finally let it go, oh, man, it, it was like starting improv all over again as far as how wonderful it was. It's just like now I just play. I just play and I have fun. So we will get a suggestion or not. You do whatever the fuck you want and it'll go fine. The suggestion we get is behemoth. Uh, I am seated in two folding chairs on stage. Miles comes in to my right. There's about 20 seconds of silence. Then I speak first and I say, I'm not trying. I then repeat that phrase again. I'm not trying. Then name Miles' character, Bob. I get up out of my chair uh, and then he asks me to sit down. He picks up a folding chair over his head and starts folding it. He wants me to sit down. Eventually, I sit down, and then I say, Mom says you wanted to move out. He gets mad and slams the folding chair, picks up the folding chair again and slams it. becomes clear in this scene that I am the high status, and Miles starts to take on more of a slower character, someone who moves slow and thinks a little slow. We start to explore the relationship. We find out that Miles's character, Bob, is 45 years old. Uh, he wants me, his brother, to help him get a girl. I suggest Sally. Um, Sally is married and has two kids. Uh, also, we discover that Bob has looked through, out a window towards Sally and has gotten trouble in the past. Uh, we also discover towards the end of the scene that I've come all the way from St. Louis and my plan is to bring Bob back home to St. Louis because he can't live this way anymore. That should give you a pretty good idea of what happened in the scene, which will help you listen to this next part, which is we begin to discuss what we just did. That was very interesting uh, for me. Um, very interesting. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Uh, how? What did you think of it? I, I I had fun in it. Okay. You want me to analyze it? Yeah. All right. Break it down. Uh, suggestion was what was the suggestion? Behemoth or something. Behemoth. Behemoth. Yeah. Uh, you sit. I'm standing there. Uh, you're reacting to me slightly. Uh, the longer I stand there, the more I start to feel sort of slow, uh, like a like a person who's slow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you said, "I'm not trying," mm -hmm. uh, which felt like a a callback to the conversation. Yes. 
Uh, so I ignored that and just just <laughs> kept, you know, I I, 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 I kept going with whatever, whatever I was whatever I was feeling because I, I didn't want to define what you meant by not I'm trying. not trying. Right. Uh, I just I was I was lost. I mean, because there was a you lot. You were lost. You were in, you were in that scene. Right. Uh, and to, to me. I had no idea what was going on. I'm just playing, and I, I, I wound up making myself, you know, potentially dumber. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whatever, that's what I feel like it, I am right now. Not, mm-hmm. not me, but my character. Right. Uh, so then I start wandering around. Uh, and the scene, you know, it, it progresses. For me, I was walking a fine line, which I, I may have screwed up. Because in a scene like that, like, I was silent. Mm-hmm. Now, at a certain point, you shouldn't speak. At a sh- certain point when you've played silently, you shouldn't speak because you disappoint the audience. Right. And that's what you had, th- that, that's what you, th- that's what you started with, right? Uh, no, that's how I started. But at a certain point, it was funny as far as competition. I'll tell you, this is, this is the honest God truth. Please. At the top of the scene, we were staring at each other, right? I'm like, you're going to speak first. <laughs> because... Because I have, because I'll stay. Well, you I'll, won. You I'll, I will sit here for six fucking minutes staring <laughs> at you, uh, and that will be fine for me. Um, but as far as like that sort of thing, it's like because it doesn't matter. It's a scene. Uh, and then once it was like, all right, I'm slow. Part of my brain goes, oh great, I'm playing a guy who's kind of mentally retarded a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, I tried to make him. I tried to you know make him not a, a complete moron as best as I could. Uh, at the same time, just like, all right, what what are this guy's simple things, right? We had a, 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 a silly little pattern game of, of the chairs. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? For some reason, emotionally, it affects this guy mm-hmm. in different ways, different things. Um, and, and in the end, it's funny because that scene winds up, it did a few different things, but it winds up telling a story. And that scene as part of a piece to me would be interesting just because we have that set up that, you know, who's this kid's mother who can no longer take care of him, mm-hmm. right? Oh, there's this man's mother who can no longer take care of him. What's going to happen at the brother's house? What's his situation? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the brother's been forced to fly down here to fly this kid back. This mm-hmm. kid's going to get on a plane. Mm-hmm. That's probably going to freak him out. So there's a lot there to be played with. Uh, and I was, you know, it's funny. I can't, I can't speak for an audience. Uh, but to me, like comically, I would say that scene was a little slow. But as far as a scene occurring within a piece, I found that scene interesting. I think it sets up a plate that can that can be very interesting to play with the information on it. What could we have done to to make it better, to make it more comedic? Uh, yeah. I, I would. I. I. You know what? I. I wouldn't even. I don't think I even, I even do that with my own scenes like that. Cause to make it more comedic, we could have started faster. We could mm-hmm. have done a different scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, 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 we could have cut away from it to something else right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why? That scene was that scene. Uh, I, I felt like you were like, what do I do with this mm-hmm. in the scene? And, and and I was just like nothing, man. Just fucking do whatever, because we're here. I'm I'm slow, and you're my brother. Right. That's fucking rough. Uh, I don't think that scene. I don't want to make more comic. Mm-hmm. I want to let I want to let that scene be more real, right? It, it had some comedy in it, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't avoid comedy, but that scene ultimately feels more real to me, and that's what makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't try to make that seem more comic. Great. We're going to take some questions and answers from the audience. All right. Great. Uh, uh, so uh, if you have a question for what we just did or something from Miles that we discussed in our conversation or anything in general, uh, if we could just turn the house lights on, that would be great. And uh, just uh, with a show of hands uh, for, for questions for Miles. Or for Jimmy. Uh, yes, was, right I here. Was gonna, I, 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 I just want to sh- share you with this. I, okay. I, I, I made myself laugh the other week, and it's, it's, you, sh- you shouldn't. But, like, no one just raised their hand, right? Until mm-hmm. someone did. Mm-hmm. And two weeks ago, no one raised their hand. I said, All right, you in the back. Uh, <laughs> and the guy in the back had to come up with the. I mean, basically, I pimped the audience. 
into coming up with a question, which I thought was a, a, a fun technique to use. All right. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yes. Great. You're right there, Liam. To get past that, the silence and the get out of your head and the desire to want to do something, but still rest in the silence and be comfortable in that silence. You said that you could sit there for six minutes and just complete silence. How do you get past that? As you mean, how do you accept that? What, what you, you're not trying to get past the silence. You're trying to get past your fear of it. Uh, you, you're trying to get past the idea that you have to be fast. You have to be funny. Uh, you're trying to accept the fact that you can just sit there and do something. Now, to me, it's kind of irresponsible because I, it would have been wrong of me just to purposefully sit there and say nothing for six minutes just to try and pimp Jimmy, right? That would be a poor use of that six minutes. Uh, but I would have done it. Uh, <laughs> I think you just you, part of it, like one of the simple answers is you don't give a fuck, right? Because part of you can't give a fuck if if because that's worrying. So why worry? What's the worst thing that can happen, right? You do a bad scene. Oh, that's yeah, that's never ever happened before. Uh, so yes, yeah, it's, it's more accepting that it it doesn't matter. It's being comfortable so that you can move forward. Uh, it's like when you worry in that moment, you stop discovering in that moment, right? Great. Another question? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Shut up. Bald. Nah. Yeah. Do there. you? Uh, what, what, what would you say is your biggest pet peeve in improv? Biggest pet peeve in improv. My biggest. Well, uh, uh, my biggest pet peeve because it's currently I'm not running into a a lot here at the Pack Theater. Uh. <laughs> As far as like, you know, for myself or as I watch it? What do you mean? Years of your experience of watching students or people that you played with or oh, people that right. watch plays. Uh, my biggest pet peeve over, over the years as a uh, walk-ons and help from the side. Uh, people who just like, you know, a scene gets going and someone walks in right fucking away to try and help out before they can establish anything. Or, you know, someone's calling in from the side or doing music from the side. It's like, if you wanted to be on stage, you should have made the fucking edit. All right? Uh, the scene on stage doesn't need that much help. Why do you still like him? What is it about improvising that you still like? It's an unending exploration of, a, of, of my own expression. Uh, I, I grow with it. I change with it. Uh, it's the best way that I have found for myself to express myself as a, I would say as an artist, but that seems like pretentious to me to express myself as a human, right? Uh, it makes me a better person. What about teaching? What do you enjoy about teaching? Money. Uh, no, seriously. <clears throat> Cause you do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I enjoy, well, it, one, it furthers my understanding to have to convey my understanding to someone else. So it's, it's partly greedy in that sense. Uh, I enjoy watching, you know, a person recognize, I, I enjoy watching a change, right? I enjoy seeing someone go from not getting it or not getting something to getting it. And I see that light up in them. Uh, and I see them getting better. Now, there are a bunch of players in this room that I know are, 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 are students of mine. And I've seen them go from like, man, Two years ago, you couldn't do this at all. And look at you now. Because uh, people forget to own their progress or, or you know, feel good about it. Uh, so I enjoy that as long as they don't get so good that they're more successful than me and don't help me out. How, how do you feel about people becoming more successful than you? I think it's great. Are I you mean, serious? <clears throat> yeah. I, I think it's great. Uh I mean, I absolutely share something that you, I think you, you, you talk about quite a bit. It was like, yeah, I am jealous uh, of Adam McKay's fucking Academy Award nomination. I'm jealous that I'm jealous of the opportunities he's gotten. I also recognize why he's gotten them. Uh, I'm jealous of all of those guys. I'm jealous of anyone else's uh, success, probably at anything, but. It, it it's to me it, it's not an unhealthy I, I, it doesn't cripple me to me it's like like hey that guy has a hundred bucks and I don't I'm jealous of that guy having a hundred bucks uh why are people so afraid to admit it admit that they're yes well I think I don't know I don't know because 
jealous, I believe, probably has a connotation in this sense that it's sort it's like it's all you do is is mire yourself in your jealousy uh wanting what you don't have and not working or it's more just like no i'm jealous i'm jealous of fucking ike barinholtz and all his his movies and sadakis and all, all his movies yes i would love to have been who to have done to have done all that uh but it's it's, it's like a moment because then all right i'm jealous but that's fine I'm also okay with it. I also I also want them to succeed. I want Adam to keep creating the shit he creates. I want all these people to keep being successful. Um, what do you want out of your career that you haven't gotten? Uh, actually, right now, money. Okay. Uh, it's money because I love what I do as an improviser. Uh, I would enjoy other opportunities, right? Uh maybe even find more ways to enjoy them should they come. Uh, but right now, it's because, you know, I have a wife and two children. Uh, the biggest stress in my life is money. Uh, so the, if, if that was removed, if you could remove my stress over money in my life, then I could probably give you a better answer to what I would like to happen in my career. Well, I will come back. I will come back <laughs> when, you, when you have it. Uh, we, we end the podcast <coughs> the same way, uh, and, and that is we ask this question – what one piece of advice would you give an improviser starting out today? Do, do everything. Uh, mainly create stuff. Study everywhere. Uh, learn as much as you can, but mainly make stuff. My main mistake in the 30 years I've been doing it was I never created stuff. It was always just the show and then gone. Whereas I should have had 20 years of sketches written, uh, but I never created anything. Uh, so do you have regret about create that? stuff? Yes, I regret that. I should have been, I, I, I should have been writing from the time I started probably. Uh, was, was that something about our generation that we were such improvisers? Yeah, we were idiots. We were purists. Right, right, yeah. So like, I'm, I'm not a sketch player. That's, right, that's right. A, a script. I'm not going to submit a packet to Conan. I'm yes, an improviser. That's ridiculous. I'll just impro my way there because that's always worked. Uh, yeah, so that's the mistake. Improv still is not something that you make money doing, right? It's a, it's a skill set that hopefully one day will be rewarded better, you know, commercially or financially, but people love it and do it because it is a fucking art form. Uh, but there's no money in doing it well. Uh, there's money in translating the skill set you learn doing it into other things. Uh, you, you, you look at all the people I know that are successful, they're not successful improvisers. Right, the successful writers or actors or producers—that's where the money and the success comes from, not from their ability to improvise. Although that skill set helped them do those other things. Miles Strauss, thank you so much for being our guest on this special episode at the Pack Theater in Los Angeles for Improv Nerd. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can, and I want to thank our guest Miles Strauss and everybody at the Pack Theater in Los Angeles for being such great hosts in recording this. I really, really appreciate that. I also want to thank my producer here in Chicago, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes it sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. If you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes and workshops, The Art of Slow Comedy, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. We're also on social media. We're on Facebook. So like our Improv Nerd Facebook page because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Follow us on Twitter at Improv underscore Nerd. And check out our uh, YouTube channel. And Dan uh, has just put up some new clips from some of our live shows. Uh, and that is uh, Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word. We're so lucky to be part of a podcast collective called feralaudio.com. So check out all the great podcasts at feralaudio.com. I want to thank both our sponsors today, Lana Improv Festival and the Chicago Women's Funny Festival. And, of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen.
All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we called clubs <laughs> discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins one day. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P in Spanish, oh my God. <laughs> he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 